Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In her song Flawless, the singer Beyonce samples Nigerian writer Chimamanda Adichie, who says we teach girls that they cannot be sexual beings in the way that boys are. Today on the program, we're going to ask, can the message of female empowerment coexist with a sexualized image? Do advertising messages of companies like Carl's Jr. and Sports Illustrated promote the objectification of women? If so, how should those messages be corrected? And how should we frame the topic of sex in the media, in the classroom, in the family, in society? We'll look through the lens of feminism, of religion, and of sex positivity. Our guests include USU Assistant Professor of Journalism and Communication, Candy Carter Olson, who joins us in studio. Welcome back to the program. Thank you. And we have with us on the phone, Emily Pryor, Executive Director of the Center for Positive Sexuality. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So, Candy, you were here for our last discussion on this general topic. We're Mm -hmm. furthering this discussion. This was in uh, kind of the cusp of the controversy over Carl's Jr., And uh, the Kite Sisters, with their uh, Beauty Redefined, were urging people to uh, take to Twitter with the hashtag, uh, Cut the Carls, and More Than Meat. Yeah. And so we had a very interesting discussion there. Mm -hmm. Uh, We want to continue that and expand that uh, uh, today. Uh, First of all, Emily Pryor, uh, could you give us a thumbnail definition? What is sex positivity? Well, to be uh, sex positive uh, means to be open and honest about sexuality. It means to have an acceptance of the multifaceted, unique ways that we can each be sexual beings, um, to embrace other identities and other ways of doing things, not just your own. Uh, It also means to communicate about sex and sexuality. It means to recognize that this is a healthy part of what it be means to be human throughout our lifetime. Hmm. So we'll talk about this as we as we go along. Uh, so the genesis of this particular episode of our program uh, came from a uh, somewhat curmudgeonly middle-aged man, that's me, <laughs> uh, getting fed up with, uh, with uh, scantily clad uh, Sports Illustrated swimsuit suit models. Uh, being figuratively shoved in my face when I went to Sports Illustrated. I just want to get the latest football or soccer, or whatever, you know, scores and, and some good writing on that site. Um, and and so that's that's where it started. And th- this is sort of what this gets into the, the idea of objectification. It just, I, I suppose that's not the total impetus for me. It, I'm just uncomfortable mm-hmm. with those images. Mm-hmm. Right. But, um, you know, we, we talk about objectification and, and certainly, you know, Carl's Jr., we talk about those ads. Uh, but, of course, I'm not in the demographic for Carl's Jr. And so Carl's Jr., the company, they, they pr- probably couldn't care less about me. Well, and I'm sure they couldn't care less about me either as as this particular uh, demographic. Um, I I think what you're trying to bridge the gap here, too, is um, the body positivity movement and the sex positivity movement and how those work together. Right. Um, And so the images that you're seeing are often very unrealistic images. And so I think... The feminist movement as a whole is really trying to bring together that women are sexual beings, that we have been, all human beings in some ways, have been divorced from their bodies as this instrument of all kinds of things. Our bodies are wonderful things, right? 
Um, but we've been divorced from them in the way that we talk about sex and our bodies, the way that we frame them, the way that they are framed in the media. Um, and so all of these conversations are trying to bridge those gaps and bring it together into a, a healthy conversation about what is the purpose of human body? How can we use it to really be pleasurable, to be happy in many different ways, um, and to be accepting of different people's bodies in the way that they are? Mm. Uh, so, Emily Pryor, do you do you agree with that? Mm-hmm. We've we've become divorced with from our bodies, essentially, especially in the. I, I do. I agree with that entirely. Actually, um, I think that especially more contemporary feminism is really looking towards issues around body image and, you know, sort of comparing this very bizarre ideal that is not at all realistic um, and is often incredibly photoshopped and, and, you know, animated in some very real ways. Um, And comparing that with who we really are. And it certainly doesn't only affect women's bodies, but it also affects how men feel about themselves. We're seeing a huge rise in men who are bulimic and anorexic and men who aren't nutritionally healthy because they're trying to reach an ideal that they can't possibly reach Mm. um, and are having body image issues and, and, you know, body dysmorphia and these sorts of things. So it's affecting everyone. And it's certainly not just women who are objectified. I'm, I'm yeah, thinking of certainly it's, it's not. sort of mild objectification. I'm thinking of an ABC television commercial where they, they trot out all their hunks of all their shows, and then they, and then they trot out the latest one, right. and the tagline is, you're welcome, you know, for... Yeah. We've got all these hunks on our show. BuzzFeed just uh, right. just put out a video in the last week that um, shows all of the male ideals from around the world. And honestly, they all looked very similar to me. It was pretty much one very white kind of male who's been a gym rat most of his life. Mm-hmm. And yeah. yeah. So, uh, Emily Pryor, th- this idea of ob- objectification, of course, there are negative ramifications. It, 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 I think it does affect how girls see themselves, self-image. Absolutely. Um, so I'd, I'd like to get into this idea of um, self-described feminist figures who are, I don't know, they're trying to co-opt uh, an ideal um, uh, for example, uh, Beyonce. In, in, in the open, I, I referenced uh, Beyonce in her song Flawless, which uh, you know has a nice message. Part of the lyric is, uh, I wake up flawless. I'm talking about women, you know. Yeah. Um, but and so she uh, samples Nigerian writer Chimamanda Adichie, saying we teach girls that they cannot be sexual beings in the way that boys are. So female empowerment. And yeah. yet... Um, She's seems to as she gets more and more control of her career, seems to be doubling down on, on a, a very sexualized image that she presents on stage. And I'm wondering if those two can coexist. Well, I think there's a lot going on there. Um, first of all, I do think that we don't allow girls and women in our current society to be fully developed sexual beings. We get really, really scared when... You know, we suddenly have, you know, Hannah Montana turning into this very sexualized person. We can't handle the transition between her being this, uh, you know, neutral, neutered child to a developed woman who is exploring herself and her sexuality. Um, 
so we have a hard time with that transition, where we don't have nearly as a difficult time when we see male pop stars transition from boyhood into manhood. We're okay with that. Um, if they express overt sexuality, we're like, well, yeah, he's a boy. It's okay. Um, but girls somehow have to maintain this idea of virginity and, and, not, and innocence. They're not supposed to be sexual. On the other side of it, of course, is because we have this very patriarchal, dominant structure around us through the media, through religion, through politics, through all sorts of things, um, it's a fine line. It's a difficult place to be a fully realized, sexualized woman and confident about that and not cross that line into sort of buying into what the patriarchy is expecting women to behave like. Candy Carter Olson, what do you think? I was just agreeing with pretty much everything there. Um, and I think it's difficult for us to define that line if there even mm-hmm. is a clear line. Um, and I think when it comes to us talking about body positivity and sex positivity, a lot of us say, well, you have to listen to the individual. Do they feel like they're being co-opted? Um, And I don't think Beyonce does feel like she's being co-opted. On the other hand, you know, girls looking at her image and saying, well, is that the only way to succeed? That's where it starts getting complicated, Mm. right? And how do you sell a lot of albums? Right, exactly. And 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 there's the... Not all of her audience is women. I don't don't know. Is is that a good assumption that she's she's presenting a sexualized image to, to get the men? Or is that a bad assumption? I don't know what you think, uh, Emily Pryor. Um, I, you know, it, it's probably a correct assumption that, that males are also buying her, her work um, and that males are obviously also going to her concerts and, and fans of hers. And some of those men may be uh, objectifying her, and some of those men may actually be feminists who are saying, oh, you know, go for it. Great mm-hmm. job, girl. And so it's hard to say. Um, I agree that it gets very, very difficult because although she may be very, very self-actualized and and really working in her own space and doing what she wants to do, and that's fabulous, being as all the rest of our society is not very sex positive, the translation of that to her audience might get a little muddied, I think. And that's why these kind of conversations are so important because we have to have education we have to have conversations about it or one person feeling self-actualized and being like this is who i am this is what i want to be becomes problematic mm-hmm. i want to talk about uh, this this phrase from from adiche we teach girls that they cannot be sexual beings in the way that boys are as i thought about this i you know my mind went to an, an extreme this is an extreme i thought about female genital mutilation this is an extreme of the idea that uh, women should not be enjoying sex. Mm-hmm. Is that I, I, I think that's behind, at least in part behind that. Yeah, that, that definitely is a protection, I think, coming from those cultures. It's supposed to protect purity and keep, woman, keep the woman basically for one man mm-hmm. so that she's not experimenting with her sexuality. So, Emily Pryor, you were, you were saying, of course, we're outraged in, in the Western world about this. And, and of course— Nonprofits and such are trying to reduce this, okay. um, but so that's an extreme. 
But you were saying earlier that that there's there's a little bit of some of this idea in in the in U.S. culture. Absolutely, and and it's an interesting idea because we certainly don't get outraged regarding male circumcision, and we do it all the time. Right. Um, which is an interesting flip of of sexism, I think. Uh, although now we do have groups who are going after the idea of not circumcising male children immediately. Um, and certainly the end results aren't necessarily, we can't necessarily equate these two, and certainly how the procedures are done, we can't necessarily equate them, although we could equate them in countries outside of the U.S. where medical practices not, might not be up to the standards that they are in the U.S. Um, at the same time, are we being culturally competent in laying our sort of U.S. values on another culture. And I think that feminism, since its inception, has been very sort of white privilege. Mm -hmm. And we have to be careful that we're not sort of putting our white privilege values onto another culture. Um, It may not entirely apply in this instance, but I think we have to be careful of that a little bit. Yeah. Go ahead, No, no, go ahead. this is something we talk about a lot in class and um, when talking about the feminist movement around the world and things like veiling in some cultures, that's another purity thing. Okay, well, in some instances, women are actually choosing veiling as a part of their expression of who they are as a woman and what they would like to be. Um, And so it's really important for us to listen to people and human beings and what they need rather than saying, here's what you need. Here's Mm -hmm. definitely what you need. Yeah. If you just joined us, we're uh, talking about uh, how should we frame uh, conversations about sex? How should we uh, frame or or, or view uh, sexual images in the media? How should we talk about this in society, in the family, uh, in the classroom? And uh, talking not only about uh, university, where Candy Carter Olson teaches, but uh, K through 12, we'll talk about some of these issues. I want to, uh, this is a good transition after the break, uh, Professor Olson uh, just talked about um, th- this idea of culture. And by the way, we're talking with uh, Candy Carter Olson, who's USU Assistant Professor of Journalism and Communication, and Emily Pryor, Executive Director of Center for Positive Sexuality. Uh, we've talked about culture. I want to move the discussion to religion. Uh, when we uh, come back, we'll also talk about women taking over some uh, former uh, male-dominated uh, fields, like, say, pornography. This, this sort of doubles down on this idea of uh, can these two ideas uh, coexist. More following the break. Support for the Utah StoryCorps Project is made possible in part by our members and the Utah State University Alumni Association. Maintaining connections through programs and facilities like the Swanner Eco Center in Park City where visitors can experience the natural world and take part in numerous Earth-friendly activities. And today's broadcast of Access Utah is an encore presentation from earlier this year. You can still participate in this conversation, though, at upraccess at gmail.com or on our Twitter at Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, we are talking about sex on the program uh, today, uh, just, to, just to try to get the ratings up. No, I'm totally uh, kidding there. Um, it, it's a uh, interesting discussion that we had in-house that we've uh, taken on the air here. How should 
uh, we frame the uh, the conversation about sex in the media, in the classroom, in the family, in society. We're looking through the lens of feminism, of religion, and of the sex positivity movement. And my guests include USU Assistant Professor of Journalism and Communication, Candy Carter Olson, and Emily Pryor, Executive Director of the Center for Positive uh, Sexuality. We got talking about uh, culture uh, before the break. And Emily Pryor, you were saying it's we have to be careful overlaying our values on a different culture. I think that's is that a fair characterization of what you were saying? Yes. And, uh, and then we're ta- then uh, Candy Carter Olson, you were talking about uh, veils, for example. Mm-hmm. That's cultural. It's also religious. Mm-hmm. And uh, so my my question, the next question is, uh, where does what what's the effect of religion? Religion, of course, people of faith have a, a big effect here in this conversation. And some people I know think that religion gets in the way of uh, intelligent conversation about sex, full conversation about sex, and even um, health aspects of, of sex. I don't know what you think, Candy Carter Olson. It's a loaded question. That is a very loaded question, <laughs> especially here in Utah. Um, I'm, I'm trying to formulate a... a uh, a response that so there are positive things about religion I would say that in terms of sexuality many times our conversations between religion and sexuality are that sexuality is bad that sexuality should be hidden those sorts of things I'm not sure that that most faiths in their essential form, actually support that. Um, I mean, if you read the Bible, it's full of sex. I mean, come on. Um, so I, I think human interpretation gets in the way here. Hmm. Uh, Emily Pryor, what do you think on this question? Well, I, you know, I think I, I fully agree with Candy. I think that... Um, Religion can get in the way uh, and can be a hindrance to open and honest communications about sexuality. But there are also there are uh, specific pastors and ministers, and there are specific groups and and churches who are much more open about sexuality. Um, mm-hmm. There are even particular religions that are much more open about it and and go incorporate sex education within their religious studies um and and you know we're not seeing any huge harmful effects of (laughs) the children or adults who are in those religions um so i think religion can go hand in hand can really help that conversation if people are already going to the their religious leaders for questions and concerns about all aspects of their lives. We know that they go to priests and ministers and and pastors about um, sexuality-related issues. We know that happens, and they need to, those authority figures need to have the correct information and and good sex education so that they can help the people that they're presumably there to help. One area, and I think this was in the back of my mind when I asked that question, although it's a broad question, one area of potential conflict that we see played out in, in many areas, including here in Utah, is uh, sex education in the classroom, K-12. through And and that's where I think, uh, you know, on one side, uh, people say, you you religious people are, are restricting my uh, 
you know, uh, child's ability to get full, uh, you know, sex education. Comprehensive sex, comprehensive yeah, exactly. sex yeah. education, where religious people are sometimes pushing for abstinence-only education. Mm-hmm. This is based on, on their sincere religious beliefs. And that's where I think sometimes a conflict does arise. Yeah, that, that actually came up for my family earlier this year. I have seven-year-old twins. Um, and they came home. They had a, uh, a good touch, bad touch conversation at school, which could be a really great conversation, and I think it'd be a really wonderful conversation, but it's a good example of how we divorce ourselves from our body because they had this whole conversation in esoteric terminology without ever discussing here what the body parts are, here mm-hmm. are why they belong to you as a person. Um, and I had to sit down with my boys and have this long conversation. And we've been talking about here what your body parts are. We use actual terminology in my household. Um, so they're they're walking around and they're both boys. And since they were about five, they're like, why can't we have a uterus? That would be awesome. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a fun conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but... It's important for kids to know what their bodies are, why their bodies are something that belongs to them, and what consent is in a helpful way. And when we talk about it in esoteric terminologies, it turns into really damaging kinds of of effects that in our household, I was like, oh, that's nope. We don't say that. Mm-mm. Yeah. Right. I want to I want to. Uh... Send the same question uh, your way, Emily Pryor, but uh, but uh, mm-hmm. preface it with uh, this. I'm looking at a, uh, uh, if I can find it here, a Huffington Post uh, article, a blog post, where a, a mother is talking about how, as uh, Candy's just said, her uh, they're open in their house. They talk about specific mm-hmm. body parts, and uh, she notes that young kids, um, you know, touch their private parts a lot. They're they're just expo- mm-hmm. exploring, mm-hmm. but she's taking this. She's saying that if you follow kind of a traditional model of parenting, it's no, 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 and the message becomes sex is bad. And we don't mm-hmm. we don't talk about it at all. So how do you navigate that and as you have this conversation with your kids? Um, well, I think it, you know it starts at the beginning. It starts telling them that they have eyes and ears and elbows and belly buttons and genitals. You know <laughs> that they have a vagina and a penis, and and that these are just body parts, and that this is a part of who they are. And as Candy was saying, that you have these conversations around your entire body is yours. And nobody gets to poke you in the arm any more than they get to touch you anywhere else without your permission and without you, you know, being a part of what, <laughs> of receiving that, um, that this is your whole body and that, that it's yours, you know. Uh, and I think there was another article, I don't know if it was through Huffington Post or something similar that I love, that there was a mother who was writing about, um, just what you're talking about, and instead of giving that no, no, no message, is essentially telling her children when it's appropriate to do things and when it's not appropriate to do things without trying to make it sound like things around the genitals are necessarily bad and things around other body parts are okay. Um, And I think the article was something about telling her daughter, oh, you you know, don't touch your vulva at the dinner table, Um, and essentially framing it 
as the same way you don't pick your nose at the dinner table either. These are things that you do somewhere privately, um, but not really putting a specific sexual weight to it. Because, again, I think adults have a tendency to look at natural reactions to one's bodies that children have. They touch all parts of their bodies, um, and it's perfectly natural to do so, to explore who they are and the boundaries of those bodies. Um, and But adults, I think, sometimes overly sexualize that touch or that play or that interaction when that's not at all what children are thinking. If you just joined us, we're talking with Emily Pryor, Executive Director of the Center for Positive Sexuality and USU Assistant Professor of Journalism and Communication, Candy Carter-Olson. You're welcome to join the conversation. What do you think about the topics we're talking about here? You can join us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, and we're on Twitter. Uh, we're at Utah Public Radio. So I'd like to take what we are just just been talking about, family discussions, and move that to the culture, to the media. Um, and, and I'm thinking specifically about uh, back to women taking over, um, co-opting, if you will, uh, in, in empowering themselves through taking over um, sexualized images. There are women-led, women-run porn- pornography magazines, right? Mm-hmm. And and uh, and mm-hmm. I guess yeah, other sure. other forms of, of pornography. I liked. I was reading a New York Times article. With a couple of women who are running a magazine called Adult, I think, and uh, if I can find it here, um, one of, one of them said uh, the difference between porn and erotica is the lighting. That's uh, Sarah <laughs> Prickett, one of the Adult magazine founders, quoting former sex actress uh, Gloria Gloria Leonard. Uh, but to Candy Carter Olson, what do you think of women taking over these this field? And, and some people would say that's <laughs> it's it's still harmful images out there that, that are going to harm women and girls? Um, I think in in this case, it's definitely intent, too. Um, it's well known that within um, porn and sex work cultures that there are a lot of b- abuses that happen um, and that those abuses are damaging to everybody's sexual identity and sexual ideas about or ideas about how sex, sh- sex should work. Um by going out and saying, hey, sex is normal, it's natural, and we have these ideas that we can put out there, um, I think they're, they're trying to reclaim the idea that sex, sex and sexuality is a normal part of our society and that it doesn't have to be abusive. Um, it can be enjoyable, Um there's this idea in media studies that if you can't see it, you can't be it, right? So if all we see is a, um, this really unrealistic idea of sex that's often painful for women, often objectifying, then it, it there's our conversation is stunted. So I think they're trying to reclaim the conversation. They're trying to to. Um, to create other avenues that um, bypass the abusive side. Hmm. Emily Pryor, I wonder, wonder what you think of this this phenomenon. Is it is it they're calling it erotica? They're they're taking over the production of these images. Is this still objectification, or or is it something else? Uh, well, I I think 
for one, I think we're, we're sometimes mincing words when we're trying to define what's pornography and what's erotica. Because mm-hmm. um, one person's pornography is another person's erotica and is another person's ick. You better never, ever let me see or hear that or read that again. <laughs> So I think we need to be careful of, of that sort of fine line there. Um, but I believe that women, especially now in the adult industry throughout, whether whether it's film or print media, um, there are a lot of amazing, powerful women who are owning their own businesses and owning their own companies and, and owning the productions. Uh, there are women who are on the ground floor who are who are making their own things and making things that they want, that they like, that they want to see out there. And I think that that's absolutely fabulous. I think that that's an incredible thing. Um, I, I live in Los Angeles. I live in the Valley. I live in the porn capital of the world. Um, and so I can't help but come in contact with men and women who work in the adult industry. It's everywhere here. Uh, There are conferences, there are all sorts of things, and because of what I do, I come in contact with a lot of them, and there are a lot of really incredible people in this industry who have a lot of self-worth, who have a lot of self-efficacy, who are amazing ethical individuals, and and, and some really amazing creative artistic people who are doing some really fascinating, interesting things. Um, that a woman, for example, chooses to create some type of erotica or pornography that may be appealing to whatever the male standard is, if that's what she wants to do and that makes her fulfilled and that gives her the paycheck that she wants and lets her be who she is, then I think that that's wonderful. Um, it's it, it's not the industry that it was, I think, in the 1970s. It's a, it's a very different industry now. Let's take another break when we come back more uh, on this uh, topic. How should we frame conversations around sex? How, how should we uh, frame uh, the presentation in media? And we're talking with Emily Pryor, Executive Director of the Center for Positive Sexuality, and Candy Carter-Olson, who is USU Assistant Professor of Journalism and Communication. More following the break. This is Science by the Slice. Synthetic spider silk holds promise as a leading biomaterial of the future with its unrivaled combination of strength and elasticity. USU biologists are conquering two major hurdles to its affordable commercial-scale production. The first is development of transgenic bacteria, that is, bacteria with the spider silk protein gene to produce plentiful quantities. The second is the discovery that water provides a safe solvent to craft usable forms of the protein into fibers, gels, coatings, and adhesives for a wide variety of uses. In the future, watch for synthetic ligaments, tendons, and skins, as well as safer airbags and lighter body armor. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu science. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Shift Festival, October 7th through 10th in Jackson Hole, Wyoming an in-depth exploration of the opportunities and challenges at the intersection of conservation and outdoor recreation. Featuring food, film, speakers, workshops, and outdoor adventure, 
Details at shiftjh.org. And today's broadcast of Access Utah is an encore presentation from earlier this year. You can still participate in this conversation, though, at upraccess at gmail.com or on our Twitter at Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Candy Carter Olson, who is USU Assistant Professor of Journalism and Communication, and Emily Pryor, Executive Director of the Center for Positive Sexuality. We're responding to uh, images on Sports Illustrated, Carl's Jr., uh, many images that we see, um, and and are these damaging images, especially uh, to women? How should we push back if we feel they're uh, damaging? Uh, What about uh, female empowerment? And sexualized images, can those two uh, coexist? We're talking about a full range of issues here through the lens of feminism, a religion, of uh, sex positivity. I'd like to take it back to uh, some of these images in U.S. media and eventually contrast this to European media and culture. Uh, So back to uh, Carl's Jr. Uh, Sometimes I've watched these Carl's Jr. ads uh, with a friend who, who says, what are they selling? Are they selling sex? Or are they selling hamburgers? And I tell my friend, yes. Yes, that's exactly what they're, Good you know. Uh, and I'm a bit uncomfortable watching watching those. Uh, you know, a lot of people aren't. And they're, they're demographic, young men, generally. That's who they're trying to get to. And, and back to the experience I had, which uh, precipitated the conversation, uh, Sports Illustrated. I'm just wanting to read the about the uh, English Premier League soccer. And uh, up comes these images, which ke- seem to get, you know, closer and closer to nudity every year. That's, you know, maybe just me, me to Tom the Prude here talking. But uh, uh, so starting with uh, Emily Pryor is, um, it, I don't know, how do, how do we, there's a full range of opinion on this. And a, as evidenced by, you know, Beauty Redefined, uh, trying to, to get this to stop and others pushing back saying, hey, this is, we ought to maybe even have more of this. We ought to be more free about our bodies in, in the media. How do we navigate that? There's, there's, there's a lot of disagreement on, on this. Yeah, I, you know, on the one hand, uh, I fully agree with you. I'm not comfortable with, with those particular, those specific ads. Um, I do think that they're very objectifying. Uh, and I think, as you were saying, you know, we certainly objectify men and women in a lot of advertising now. Um, it's so difficult because really this is something that has to be worked at from so many different levels. You know, we have to do this in our homes with our children and educate them and talk with them and, and, and give them, you know, real information around sex and sexuality. Uh, we also need, you know, government policies that allow for the understanding that we're people and and things of this nature, um, you know, some sense of equality among the sexes. And and the media is such a hard thing to get at, I think. Um, do we stop all images that depict someone's body or that we depict sexuality at all? I think that that seems extreme and not sex positive. Um on the other hand, I think it can be a very difficult space to, you know, put a committee together that gets to decide what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. We get into some really scary areas there when that starts to happen. 
And of course, there's a, there is a freedom of speech issue here that we have to consider. So I, I think it's very difficult. I don't think it's an easy answer. It's certainly not an easy fix. Hmm. Candy Carter Olson, what do you what do you think? No, and I agree. I I fall on the prude side of those particular images too, but primarily because they're very unrealistic. They they aren't presenting the female body. Um, as it actually is, because they're so highly altered. Um, so how do we frame media? How do we approach it? I think, again, this is where the body positivity movement, I think, conf- like comes and collides with this conversation, where a lot of women are coming in. And so, okay, it's marketing. Drives me crazy. Yes, they're trying to sell something. But Lane Bryant just came out with um, this campaign where they are selling underwear but um, they're asking people to send in selfies of themselves as they actually are real bodies. So we're starting to see more of these, um, these campaigns of women saying, hey, this is my body. This is what I actually look like. There was a, um, a photogra- an online photography exhibition that um, came out, I think it was four or five years ago. I can't remember. Um, but it was just women who took pictures of their stomachs and said, this is what my stomach actually looks like with stretch marks. And um, I had kids, so I have C-section marks and I had surgery and I have a a bag for filtering my body fluids constantly attached to me. It was hundreds of just stomachs and um, what they actually look like rather than, you know, pretty Photoshop um, out. And I think that's what's going to be the pushback there is this look at, okay, what do people actually look like? Let's get back to real bodies, real mm. images. Um, I mean, a new thing in Photoshopping is taking out women's um, genitals altogether and creating this kind of, what the heck is that body? Um, and so it's it's important to, to show, hey, look, we actually do look like this. We have full bodies. We're not going to just chop ourselves up to try and look like you can make us look with a computer program. Mm. Uh, Emily Pryor, I wonder what you think. What what If you don't like the way the presentation of the media is going, whatever side you're on, how best to get into the arena and, and uh, have an effect? Well, I, I agree with Candy. I think certainly the the body positivity movement is, is making is starting to make some headway and we're even seeing that happening in pornography and erotica as well yeah. where we're seeing full-figured women and we're seeing transgender people and we're seeing uh, a lot of different types of bodies that um, are are also being portrayed as being sexy and sexual and erotic and I and I think that that's really really great I think that that's fantastic um, so you know, I, I I think part of this is really going to have to come out of these grassroots movements of, you know, people just not taking this anymore. Um, as, as annoying as I, I may find Twitter on a personal level, this is something, it's a media that I can't keep up with and that I, <laughs> I don't have a lot of time for. But, but I see how useful different types of social media can be 
to really push these movements forward and to get photographs out there. Um, a, a sex positive sexologist friend of mine who is a larger woman posted, she was feeling really good about herself, and she posted pictures of herself in a new bathing suit on her Facebook page. And the blowback was ridiculous. That, And this is her Facebook page, so she's, these are people who are presumably friends of hers, you know, presumably uh, know her in some way, responding to her and saying, oh, you really can't post that. You re- that's disgusting. You can't do that. And what was wonderful was her pushback and, and pretty much saying, ah, well, then I'm just going to unfriend you <clears throat> rather than take the picture down. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we need to see more of that. I think we need to see more of these depictions of how men and women really look and and really and and even redefining what a quote unquote healthy body is. The media mm-hmm. tells us that these uber sculpted, photoshopped bodies are healthy, when we know that what that looks like has absolutely nothing to do with actual physical health. Hmm. I wonder it, as uh, as Emily was talking there, uh, Candy Carter Olson, I. Um, you know, we've, we've both, you both talked about sculpting, sculpted bodies, photoshopped, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of gauging my reaction to, you know, photoshopped and, and uber sculpted men. And mm-hmm. I think I'm detecting perhaps a difference in the way women react to that and men do. My reaction is, well, good for him. You know, <laughs> that's okay. I'm not going to do the push ups, you know, the sit ups. Uh, I think maybe women react in a different way. I don't know. And, and is that cultural? But I think as Emily's been saying, I, it, that's really changing for men in particular because as we're seeing, we're having a um, we're, we're having a huge rise seeing a huge rise in men having body dysmorphic disorders, mm-hmm. particularly yeah. among younger men. Um, this uh, feminism needs to be concerned about that as well. Yeah. I mean, we need to be concerned about all genders and their body image and the rise in male feelings of disempowerment around their bodies and that body dysmorphic disorder is really problematic Mm. um, and it's challenging. And it's an interesting conversation to have in my college classrooms because um, the, the students can really define, okay, so what's the ideal man? Oh yeah. I can name it all and, and they'll laugh, but then they'll also be like, and I just spent several hours in the gym trying to get there as well. Interesting. Uh, Emily Pryor, yeah. are, you, are you seeing this as well? And what, what's changed then? This is affecting men more. Um, yes, I'm definitely seeing that as well. Um, and, and I teach college classes as well. So, you know, meeting these students who are at that vulnerable age where this media is really, they're the target audience. That 18 to 24-year-old group is really the target audience for so much of this media. Um and I think that, you know, I, I, I think that there's this continuing trend that we're, uh, you know, so focused on what the quote-unquote perfect body looks like uh, and not at all concerned about what it is to be a good person. Right. Um, you know, because, like, the, the typical perfect male or female is depicted as being this, you know, 
godlike, you know, Greek godlike uh, a body, but no brains whatsoever. This person is not emotional. This person is not smart. This person, you know, which is really, really sad. And I, and I think really, again, building on a more sex positive perspective can really help that. I mm. think that a part of that needs to be communicating about all of these things and recognizing that there are other attributes to being a person that are really going to connect people much more than how somebody looks. Right. You can find somebody who's drop-dead gorgeous, but if they don't have a single thought in their head or they're a horrible person, you're not going to have a fulfilling relationship with them. Right. And I think um, we're starting to see some media pushback against this image of males as well, men, particularly when we're talking about it in terms of educating young boys. So at Sundance this year, the Representation Project, which did misrepresentation a few years ago, premiered its newest documentary called The Mask You Live In, which is all about masculinities and how masculinity is framed in our society and how that really divorces young boys from their emotions and their ability to be an emotional, full human being. I wonder, just a few minutes left, let me run this first past uh, Emily Pryor. We've talked on previous occasions with uh, the Kite sisters. They're uh, Aggies, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Lexi Kite and Lindsay Kite, uh, two PhDs, and they're, they're really into this idea of, uh, you know, f- pushing back against objectification and, uh, and, and body image. And one uh, initiative that they took, and their website is beautyredefined.net, uh, so for the issue of uh, swimsuits, swimsuit, uh, Sports Illustrated, the swimsuit issue, uh, you could get uh, post-it notes to, to paste over the images, mm-hmm. uh, one of which would say, uh, you are capable of much more than looking hot. That's, that's kind of the idea. So I wonder, Willie Parr, what do you, th- what do you think of this, this sort of a pushback, getting into the arena there? Uh, well, it's a cute idea. <laughs> I think it's a really interesting idea. Uh, I don't know if the general readership of the magazine is going to um, care one way or the other, or they I don't know if they'll feel offended or just it won't matter one at all. Um, again, but I think it's an interesting and creative way to sort of insert these messages. Um, and maybe what needs to happen is, is somehow, you know, certainly commercial time is, is extremely expensive, but somehow starting to create some other types of media, some other types of commercials or print media that really get at this, that really start to either show people in more realistic ways or even start to get away from, you know, do we have to always be defining everybody by how they look? Because that would be great to get away from altogether, at least to some degree. Can we define people by their skills, their intelligence, their emotional capacity, as opposed to just how they look? Let me just have a couple of minutes left. I want to fit this uh, email in from uh, Gary in Logan. 
Says what concerns me is that in many of our social structures, we don't have adequate access to learn about sex in schools or our parents. So pornography is where young men turn towards. I uh, think with a better understanding of sex at its root, we wouldn't have to be so worried about Carl's Jr. in Sports Illustrated. If media and porn weren't such a large source of sexual understanding, I wonder what your guests advise to those who are interested in learning more about obtaining a sex-positive lifestyle, getting away from the media. What can we do honestly to explore an accurate understanding of uh, sex? So just uh, very briefly, Candy Carter-Olson, what, do you, what would you say to that? I would say that's a... Uh we need to start having these conversations. So the sticky notes, yeah, they're cute, but they at least start a conversation. Um, And we need to somehow educate parents that they need to start having conversations with their kids that are honest and open and um, don't stigmatize sex. Um, And we need to get people like Emily's group into, into schools and universities and all kinds of places starting these conversations so that the conversation is going in a positive direction rather than being taken over by Carl's Jr. and mm-hmm. Sports Illustrated. So only prior, just there are 30 seconds left. What, what would you say to Gary? Uh, go to uh, get more information, obtaining sex-positive lifestyle, getting away from the media. What can we do to explore accurate understanding of sex? I agree. Um, there are a wonderful websites out there. There's the National Sex Education Institute uh, that puts out great material for parents and children. Um, there's, uh, you know, my own center, we go to classrooms, we go to college classrooms and we go speak with professionals, therapists and healthcare professionals and give them accurate information so they can pass that along. Um, there are a lot of resources out there. It just might not be immediately local. You might need to do some internet searching, uh, and look for places that offer this comprehensive information and offer ways to have these conversations. By the way, uh, Emily Pryor's center is positivesexuality.org. That's where you you go for for her center. That's the uh, Center for Positive Sexuality. Uh, Emily Pryor is executive director. Thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, Candy Carter-Olson has joined us, USU Assistant Professor of Journalism and Communication. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, join us uh, tomorrow for Access Utah. Thanks for listening today programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Shift Festival, October 7th through 10th in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. An in-depth exploration of the opportunities and challenges at the intersection of conservation and outdoor recreation. Featuring food, film, speakers, workshops, and outdoor adventure. Details at shiftjh.org. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a Utah Public Radio production featuring contributors who share a love of nature, preservation, and education. Who doesn't love hummingbirds? I'm always amazed at how a tiny life form with a brain smaller than a pea is capable of such amazing intelligence and behaviors. In fact, a hummingbird's brain is proportionally larger in size to their body mass than that of any other bird. And like the corvid families, jays, magpies, and crows, research has found that hummers have an amazing memory. Now is a seasonal peak for hummingbird activity with young birds fresh off the nest. One of my favorites, the migrating rufous hummingbird, may join the milu on their long-distance marathon as they make their way from as far north as Alaska to winter in Mexico. The feistiest hummingbird in North America, the brilliant orange male and the green and orange female, are relentless attackers at flowers and feeders. These fearless competitors will challenge even the largest hummingbirds of the Southwest, which can be double their weight and often win the contest. 
Rufous hummingbirds are wide-ranging and breed farther north than any other hummingbird. Look for them in spring in California, summer in the Pacific Northwest, and Alaska, and now in the Rocky Mountains as they make their annual circuit of the West. They have the hummingbird gift for fast darting flight and pinpoint maneuverability. Like other hummers, they eat insects as well as nectar, taking them from spider webs or catching them in mid-air. Rufous hummingbirds breed in open areas, yards, parks, and forests up to timberline. On migration, they pass through mountain meadows as high as 12,600 feet, where nectar-rich tubular flowers are blooming. Winter habitat in Mexico includes shrubby openings and oak pine forests at middle to high elevation. They may take up residence, at least temporarily, in your garden if you grow suitable flowers, or put out feeders, but beware. They may make life difficult for any other species that visit your yard. If you live on their migration route, the visiting rufus is likely to move on after just a week or two. Regarding feeders, make sugar water mixtures with one cup of sugar per quart of water. Food coloring is unnecessary. Table sugar is the best choice. Change the water before it grows cloudy or discolored, and remember that during hot weather, sugar water ferments rapidly to produce toxic alcohol. If you are among those who have these dazzling sprites of amazing life stop by, consider yourself fortunate indeed. This is Jack Green reading for Wild About Utah. Wild About Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. For more than 30 years, working to preserve the wilderness at the heart of the Colorado Plateau. More about protecting Utah's wilderness heritage at suwa.org. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. Thank you for listening to Access Utah on Utah Public Radio. The time now is 10 o'clock.